If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter number 7. Revelation chapter number 7. Usually when this passage comes up, the first point of conversation is the 144,000 and the misrepresentation of the 144,000 and their role in God's plan within the system that is Jehovah's Witnesses. It will not be the point of our conversation, nor is it the point of our passage this morning. And I thought it was worth noting. It's the first thing that comes, even in the culture, outside of Christianity and any interest whatsoever in anything religious, that's kind of the first thing that comes. I think I knew that before I knew anything else really about the Bible. That is not the focus of Revelation 7 as we will see this morning. Rather, we have an incredibly encouraging, refreshing challenging passage before us that should leave us invigorated again to go forth bearing the glad tidings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to walk us through from whence we've come, beginning in Revelation 1 through Revelation 6 to where we are now. But before we do that, I'd like for us to read together our passage. Revelation 7 will begin in verse 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Revelation 7 and verse number 1. This is what the Word of God says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God rise up from the east. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Judah. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were robed in white with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asked me, who are these people robed in white and where'd they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. The lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. 
In Revelation chapter 1, the revelation itself begins. What we see is one like the Son of Man dressed in a long robe with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes as fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters with seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth and his face shining as the midday sun. He says of himself, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And the first dose of comfort and consolation is granted to a suffering and struggling church. There's an interpretive axiom that you really need to be reminded of and embrace this morning as we begin Revelation 7, which is that these verses must have meant something to their first century audience before they can mean anything whatsoever to us. This first century congregation, these first century congregations suffering at the tip of the spear under heavy persecution and the prospect of death are comforted at this vision of who Jesus is. There are times, it seems to me, in worship when God is pleased to grant us a glimpse of his glory. And from those experiences, such encouragement comes. They are mountaintop experiences, milestone moments in our journey with Jesus that refresh and nourish our soul and ready us for tomorrow, come what may. Times when God enlightens our eyes and opens our heart to behold Jesus in the fullness of his beauty, reinvigorated by that subtle encounter with the God who made us and his son who has saved us. That's how the book of Revelation begins. In chapters two and three, Jesus addresses specifically the churches. In some cases, there is a fruit worthy of repentance and there are gospel successes that are worthy of celebration, consistency in their walk with Christ. There is a remnant of faithful believers in each of these congregations, it seems, but in every case, there's some degree of trouble. Difficulty abounds, sin and compromise have crept their way into the church, not to mention the fact that the church is enveloped in the darkness of a crooked and perverse generation. There is the threat of persecution, the threat of persecution, the ongoing threat of persecution, and even for some, the prospect of death. Antipas stands as the lone martyr named in chapters two and chapter three, but a note to us that we'd be aware of the reality that death as a result of our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord is a very real prospect for the seven churches that are numbered in the book of Revelation chapters two and three. The question we're left with, the looming question at the end of Revelation chapter three is how or when will God move to vindicate his righteousness and to avenge the blood of the saints? The answer we begin to receive in chapter four. John turns our attention away from earth to heaven. That's where all our answers lie. And there we see the Father, one seated on the throne of heaven, one who is worthy of worship and praise and glory and honor and strength and power and dominion. He is worthy of our worship. And the Bible tells us here that in the right hand of the one seated on the throne is a scroll written on front and back, sealed with seven seals. The strong implication of the passage is that upon the scroll are the answers to all of our problems and issues. 
Specifically, the question of how and when God will move in order to vindicate his righteousness and to avenge the blood of the saints. The answers are on the scroll. However, no one is found in heaven who is worthy to open the scroll. That is, until in chapter 5, one like a lamb slaughtered is introduced. He stands in the midst of the elders. Jesus stands among his people. Those elders come to symbolize the people of God, past and present and future. And Jesus stands in their midst as their advocate, one like a lamb slaughtered. And all of heaven declares that he and he alone is worthy to take and to open the scroll. And indeed he does. Chapter 6 begins to detail the judgments, the decreed judgments of God contained upon the scroll. Remember... These words have to mean something to the first century congregation before they mean anything to us. We were reminded last week that the judgments that are detailed in chapter 6 can largely be found in today's Sunday paper. Somewhere in the world, the very judgments described in Revelation chapter 6 are unfolding at this very hour. And the same is true in the first century. The unfolding of these calamities, these judgments as they're described, evidence that God is not waiting until some point in the future to avenge the blood of the martyrs, to vindicate his righteousness, but is actively working today, serving justice in all the world. Although it's partial, it is incomplete. The fullness is yet to come on the last day. God is actively pursuing the vindication of his righteousness and the, and the vengeance of the blood of all who are persecuted at this very hour. The discomforts that are often experienced in the world, the calamities unfolding around us are evidence of his activity in judgment. You get to the end of chapter six, there's a question here sort of looming. This is how revelation moves. You have the introduction of the revelation of Jesus, discussion on the church, which creates a problem. A solution provided for us in chapter 5, which creates a problem. A solution to that problem provided in chapter 6, but that solution will itself create a problem. The problem is spelled out for us in the last question in Revelation 6. If you would turn back to chapter 6 in verse number 15. The Bible says here, then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the military commanders, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question, who is able to stand? If God is going to move in such fierce judgment, who in the world can survive these acts of judgment? Who is able to stand in the face of the fierce wrath of the Lamb? What, what will happen to us as the fierce wrath of the Lamb befalls the earth? As God exacts justice, what will the outcome be for those of us who have been sealed by the gospel, saved by the gospel? Chapter 7 answers that question. In fact, chapter 7 is this great big parenthesis. We don't get to the 8th or the 7th seal, rather, until Revelation chapter 8. And it's a sweet, sweet passage. All of heaven gets quiet 
And for half an hour, there is utter silence in heaven. And what seems to be implied is that God has hushed the multitude of heaven in order to tenderly listen to the prayers of the saints. It is a sweet and powerful passage. But here in chapter 7, we have this parenthesis where the question that we were introduced to in Revelation 6 is answered. Who can stand against this flood of God's judgment that is to come? That's where we find ourselves in Revelation 7 and verse 1. Verses 1 through 3 kind of stand together. Look there. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God rise up from the east. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. These angels are working in tandem with those four angels that go out as the four horsemen we discussed in Revelation chapter 6. And their purpose, their act of service is to limit or to restrain the judgment as it unfolds such that the sealed of God may survive until their sealing. Such that the predetermined plan of God in the assembling of a people all his own may be brought to pass before the fullness of God's judgment is at last poured out. We're having great conversations in the office about the book of Revelation from week to week. I mentioned this last week. This past week, the conversation was this. Are there any criteria, are there any boxes yet to be checked that would somehow limit Jesus from returning at this very moment? The answer to that question is a resounding no. And frankly, I don't know where these ideas of certain boxes needing to be checked ever came from. Jesus could return in an instant. Jesus could have returned in the second century. Jesus could have returned last year. Jesus could have returned in the 20th century. He is in no wise limited. All of the criteria enumerated in Jesus foretelling his second coming in his earthly ministry or those which are uh, discussed or described in the book of Revelation all have, all have come to pass. All of the boxes have been checked. We're having this discussion within the context of Mark 13 and Matthew 24. We looked at a couple of those verses last week. Mark 13 says the gospel must be preached in all the earth. Mark 24 says the gospel must be preached in all the earth and then the end will come. The reality for us is, and we should celebrate this notion, that the gospel has in some ways been preached in all the earth. We are the ends of the earth. The fact that we are gathered here on the other side of planet earth from the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, where our Savior intervened in human history, gave his life a ransom for many, and rose again on the third day is a testament to the global reach of the gospel. Even today, the language used to describe one of the most inaccessible areas of the world is the 1040 window. That used to be a place in Christian history where the gospel was flourishing and many were coming to faith in Jesus. The only restraining factor that limits the Lord Jesus Christ from coming back at this very moment is a subtle observation that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John when he says, I have sheep that are not yet of this fold. 
But one day, brothers and sisters, the full number of the sheepfold will be brought to completion. And when it is, not only will Jesus come to cleanse and claim his church eternally, he will fully and finally vindicate his righteousness and avenge the blood of every saint who ever laid down their life to see the message of the gospel advanced in all the world. Until that time comes, we, we are partners in, participants in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, bearing the glad, glad tidings of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. I heard years ago as a relatively new believer trying to get my arms around this second coming business, Billy Graham surmising that perhaps the way the events of the last days would unfold, be a country church in an out of the way place, place of seeming insignificance, where a gospel invitation might be extended, a little boy, a little girl, a senior adult, would bow their head and heart and believe. And upon their confession, the full number of the sheepfold might be made complete. The father would look to the son and say, son, go get your bride. The only factor that stays the hand of God in exacting justice in all the world and vindicating the righteousness even of his people is his patience towards sinner. And the persistence of our God to seek and to save to the uttermost, bringing to completion the full number of the sheepfold that would draw glory and praise and honor to his name eternally. That's the operation of these angels. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. I think we should see what is described in verse 3, the sealing of the slaves or the servants of our God on their foreheads in contrast to what's described in Revelation 13 with the mark of the beast. I observed in the last service that if I really want to get the attention of the congregation in this series, all I have to do is just say, mark of the beast. And everyone looks up. Revelation chapter 13, there are those who take the mark on their right hand, those who take the mark on their forehead, symbolic of their identification with Satan by their actions or identification with Satan by virtue of the things that they believe or the things that they think. Here, the saints of God are being sealed in a similar way on their forehead, representative of their being sealed by virtue of what they believe. To be sealed is to be saved. And to be saved is to be saved by grace, through faith, not of works. By believing the message of the gospel, we are saved and we are kept. This is the beginning. Today is the first day of the Advent season. When we remember what God has done in human history to save us from our sin. We remember the first coming of Christ. How Jesus mildly lay his glory by, born that man no more may die. How he clothed himself in flesh and came to dwell in the midst of his own, in spite of the fact that his own would reject him out of hand. Jesus came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in absolute perfection, laying down his life on the cross 
being raised again the third day. In his humiliation, Jesus received the exaltation of the Father, being assigned the name which is above every name, that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow, both in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Wait, wait, the angel says, until the full measure of the, of the sheepfold has been complete. Until all the servants of our God have been sealed by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 4, the passage continues. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. 12,000 from Judah. 12,000 from Reuben. 12,000 from Gad. 12,000 from Asher, 12,000 from Naphtali, 12,000 from Manasseh, 12,000 from Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from Issachar, 12,000 from Zebulun, 12,000 from Joseph, and 12,000 sealed from the tribe of Benjamin. We're now answering the question posed at the end of chapter 6, who can stand? And the answer is all of the sealed of Israel. Apocalyptic literature, which is what we're dealing with in Revelation, likes to use numbers to signify certain things. You're familiar with the concept of numbers signifying completion or fullness in the Bible. For instance, the number three is the least of numbers, which signifies completion. The number seven is the most commonly used number to signify completion. But the number 10 can function to signify completion as well. Think of Job chapter 1. Historically speaking, Job has seven sons and three daughters, and together he has ten children. The way the historical circumstances of Job, Job's life is framed is that he has the idyllic family. He has a, a full number of boys, he has a full number of girls, and together he has a full number of children. Perhaps some of you young families should set your, height, your sights a little higher than what you have, right? Ten seems to be the idyllic family in the Job context, right? 10 can function to say fullness, completeness. The number 12 in the context of God's people becomes the chosen number to signify a full number. It's a larger number, but that seems at least subtly to indicate the, the, the largeness of God's people. It is a vast people that God is gathering to himself. For example, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 apostles that stand as the figureheads of the body of Christ from that point forward in history. 12 is a full number, a little larger number than 3, 7, or even 10. Here we have the number 12 signifying fullness or completion multiplied by 12. So you got fullness times fullness multiplied by a thousand. Now, the number thousand in apocalyptic literature has a symbolic meaning as well. Some of you are anxiously anticipating our arrival at Revelation chapter 20 and the answering of unanswered questions about what that millennium period of time is all about back there. The, the, the brother way translation for 1,000 in apocalyptic literature is a whole bunch. That's what a thousand is. It's a long time. It's a whole bunch of people. In this context, you have perfection, fullness, times fullness, time a thousand. 
In other words, all of the people of God are ultimately sealed and brought in times all of the people of God ultimately sealed and brought in times 1,000. There's a whole bunch of people gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him with all of the gusto that they can muster. Who is able to stand against the judgment of God as it comes? All of the sealed of Israel is the first answer our passage gives us. Every Israelite that would believe in the message of the gospel, sealed by the Spirit, will be upheld, will be sustained against the flood of God's wrath that is to come. Hardship and difficulty is coming, but these hardships and difficulties cannot beset us in our faith. They cannot remove from us what God has granted by the gospel. What's being said here is plainly stated elsewhere in the New Testament. Nothing and no one, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from the hand of God. Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the message of Revelation 7. We're following after the pattern pattern of difficulty and hardship for the people of God that has existed since the foundation of the world. In fact, I'll just sort of, I'll just tell you, in the end, in the last section of our passage, the message is pretty clear that God is saving us not from tribulation, but God is saving us through tribulation. Now, if you can, for just a moment, if, if you are married to a system of understanding the end times that doesn't afford you margin for that observation, if you can just think in terms of everyday life for just a moment, think back through the history of God's work of redemption. When God moved in judgment against the world the first time, he put Noah and his family on the ark. He saved them not from the flood, but through the flood. In, in the book of Joshua, there's an apocalyptic episode. We don't think of it in these terms, but the tumbling down of the walls of Jericho. The Israelites' conquering of the city of Jericho is, is an apocalyptic event in the Old Testament. In fact, just for those of you who have interest in such things, the imagery in chapter 6 and verse 15 of kings of the earth, nobles, military commanders, rich and powerful, slave and free, scurrying off into the surrounding mountains and hiding themselves in caves, that comes almost verbatim from what is described in Joshua of the destruction of the city of Jericho. Kings are running away and cowering in caves, and God is working and moving in judgment within the city of Jericho. The people of Israel were observers in the unfolding of God's judgment not removed from the unfolding of that judgment. When the people of Israel are carried away, when Judah falls captive to Babylon, when the army of Nebuchadnezzar makes its way into the city of Jerusalem, ransacks the city, destroys the temple, and carries Daniel and other Hebrew boys away captive, the remnant is saved through the tribulation of those days and not from the tribulation of those days. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into that fiery furnace, one like the Son of Man in their midst, they are saved not from the tribulation of those days, but through the tribulation of those days. And Revelation speaks powerfully of this reality. If there's a single observation I wish that everyone could get and embrace in our study of Revelation, it is this. 
The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, focus on the passion of Christ as the means of salvation for all men who believe and trust in Jesus. The book of Revelation has as its focus the passion of the church as the means of salvation for all men who repent and believe the message of the gospel. Think of what Jesus endures in his life. Not the removal from tribulation, but perseverance through tribulation. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the agony of the cross. For the joy of gospel advancement, the call of Christ on our life is to endure the indignity and the agony of tribulation. To bear with hardship and pain and inequities. To bear with unfairness and injustice. Just that a few more could hear the life-giving message that Jesus saves us from all our sin. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Lord, if there's a way that this bitter cup could pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we are to model that mentality in our life. Lord, if there'd be a way that the bitter cup of tribulation and hardship and difficulty could pass from me, let it be, nevertheless, not my will, not our will, but your will be done. Be pleased that we be poured out a living sacrifice that the ends of the earth would know that Jesus Christ is king. Revelation is about the passion of the church inspired by, the pattern set by, the passion of our Savior Jesus. All of true Israel, sealed by faith in the gospel, are sustained even against the onslaught of God's judgment against this cruel and wicked world. Now, in my mind, that 144,000 encompasses all of the people of God. We as Gentile people have been grafted into the lineage of Abraham by faith in Jesus but a subset of that 144,000 is discussed in verses 9 and following, just so that there be clarity about how we answer this question of who is able to stand against the judgment of God. After this, I looked, verse 9, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the lamb they were robed in with white palm they were robed in white with palm branches in their hands and they cried in a loud voice salvation belongs to our god who is seated on the throne and to the lamb all the angels stood around the throne the elders and the four living creatures and they fell face down before the throne and worshiped god saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our god forever and ever amen not only will the will the sealed of israel be sustained in that day in fact we might say this the sealed of israel are sustained in, in that day in the past, are sustained on this day in the present, and will be sustained on that great day in the end. But all of the people of God, of every tribe and tongue and nation, regardless of ethnic background or cultural association, all who have been sealed by faith in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ will be sustained and kept how many of you know that not, not only does God save us from our sin, but he keeps us eternally? This is a passage that's been used to encourage and celebrate missions. 
that this is a no-lose proposition for us in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. From every tribe and nation and language, God is raising up a people all his own. We cannot lose. The game has been rigged. In the end, we win. Not by our ingenuity or our clever persuasiveness, but by the providence of an all-sovereign God who is seeking out and saving to the very ends of the earth a people all his own. We can't lose. This passage ought to be leveraged in that way. But more than anything else, this is a passage that celebrates the eternal security that we have in Christ. You know, we've, we've labored to make connections between Revelation and other passages in the Bible so often. This is not a, a, a reference that I think John intends to make, nor do I think the Spirit intends that he would make in this particular passage. But there is a passage in Romans 8 that comes to mind in thinking about this reality, that the tribulation of this life cannot separate us from the love of our God. In verse 31, the Bible says there, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him give us all things or everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He's at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can affliction or anguish or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth or any created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though we be counted as sheep for the slaughter, the victory is ours through Christ our Savior. That's the purpose of Revelation 7. Who can stand against this onslaught of God's judgment? The sealed of God by the gospel of God. That's the answer. The passage goes further. I, I would note, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the significance of songs in the book of Revelation. If you find yourself reading along and you're sort of wrestling with identifying what the key theme is or the theological or doctrinal purpose of a passage, look for the song. Here we have one. The Gentile nations sing, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Our song is one of salvation. We sing and we celebrate the reality that God has saved us. That God has saved us. Do, do you know the trillions upon trillions upon trillions of connections, intended and unintended consequences from our point of view that have unfolded in the 2,000 years since the resurrection of Jesus that resulted in the arrival of the message of the gospel on your doorstep? Have, have you given any consideration whatsoever to that reality? That God has been at work since the very foundation of the world, orchestrating not only the events of your life, but the events of human history that would culminate in your conception and eventual birth. 
Not to mention the conditioning of your heart over the course of your young life in order that you might be softened to the realities of the gospel, arrested by the power of God's spirit, eyes enlightened and heart open to receive the gift of faith. God has been moving since the foundation of the world for your salvation and for mine. The very fact that we are gathered here this way this morning is a testament to the power, to the omnipotence, to the great insight, to the omniscience of our God and his hot and passionate pursuit to seek and save the lost. It's a beautiful thing. It's precisely what our passage attests to this morning. If you go down into verse number 13, I think there's a great lesson to be learned here. A lesson that we've alluded to, in fact, it's been stated, but that needs to be pressed on a bit. One of the elders asked me, who are these people robed in white and where'd they come from? This is kind of an unfair situation, right? Anytime Christians get together and talk about heaven, this comment will always be made. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, fill in the blank. And here John gets a vision of heaven and somebody asks him a question. It's not fair. Who are these people who are robed in white? John answers with wisdom. You know who they are. Translated, I'm not sure, but I think if I push this back on you, you'll tell me what the answer is. He told me in verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they're before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his sanctuary. We'll go back to this principle. Had to mean something there before it can mean something here. If you're the family of Antipas, that faithful martyr, who died for his confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you comforted by this observation? A special privilege, place, and prominence is assigned to those who lay down their life for their confession that Christ is Lord and not Caesar. They're nearest the throne, the Bible says. And they've experienced this strange phenomenon of having washed their robes as white in the blood of the lamb. You find them before the throne. In other words, nearest the throne. These are those who are coming out of the tribulation. I've cited a number of times the purposes of Revelation 7. The purpose is to say that we're winners. The purpose is to say that the seal of God will stand against the wrath of God when it comes. The purpose, to say, the purpose is to say that God is saving us through and not from the tribulation. In, in fact, the grammar, the, the language and the grammar that's used in this particular passage is really forceful in order to say he's not saving them from tribulation in the sense of taking them out. He's saving them through tribulation in the sense that they have endured hardship and difficulty and have given their life for their confession of the truthfulness of the gospel. Now that, that's, that's not a conclusion drawn as an interpretive move. That's just hard, fast grammar and syntax reading from the passage. They're being saved through tribulation and not from tribulation in this passage. And it fits the pattern of the Christian experience. Even if you don't have margin in your understanding of the unfolding of these events for such a conclusion, surely there's a separate category in your everyday life 
for the role of tribulation in the experience of a Christian. If the prosperity gospel has done nothing for us in the Western world, it has served as a foil and a reminder of how wrongheaded it is to believe that the Christian experience would be marked by consistent comfort, wealth, and prosperity. The reality for us is we follow after the pattern of our Savior who took up the cross and died in our place. He would say of discipleship, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes of the ground have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We're called to persevere faithfully through the tribulation of this life with no guarantee of removal from the tribulation and difficulties of this experience. In fact, if you're living a consistently comfortable Christian life, that ought to be cause for some pause in your spirit. There ought to be a check there in the absence of some difficulty. Where do we make application of Paul's observation that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and the various other connections made between difficulty in life and the Christian experience. Paul's word of encouragement to the church, his sermon was this, through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of God. Now, in, in reality, it's not a fellowship issue how you unfold or understand the unfolding of the last days. There's going to be disagreements and differences. When we all get to heaven, everyone will agree with me. But for the time being, there'll be some disagreements there, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But listen, you've got to know in your everyday Christian experience that a part of what it means to walk with Jesus is to bear with the hardship that inevitably comes with serving God faithfully. And the sad reality is that the day and hour which we live demands that we observe and get comfortable with the notion that things are only going to get more and more difficult for us as we endeavor to walk faithfully with Jesus. You better get comfortable with discomfort if you're going to walk with Jesus for very long at all. And here we're reminded of the nobility of giving one's life a living sacrifice unto Jesus. In chapter 6, we saw the executioner's stump transformed by the gospel into the altar of God. Beneath the altar, the, the martyrs who'd given their life for their confession gathered before God and celebrated. This is an incredible thing. There is, again, a measure of invincibility that comes with these observations we cannot lose. Even if our earthly life is snatched away, God gives it back immortally, incorruptibly, and eternally. This is a win-win proposition for the people of God. Verses 15 and following, all of the promises of heaven cited and the conclusion of this great book are, are appropriated to those who give their life and are killed in the great tribulation. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You can risk life and limb, throw caution to the wind, because anything lost, even your mortal life, God gives back in the resurrection. I'm, I'm reminded of 
stories of Andrew Jackson. Listen, I'm, you can't even mention a historic figure anymore without some effort at canceling him. So this, I'm not, I'm not advocating for the life history of Andrew Jackson. So everybody chill if that's your inclination. He was, he was raised in a staunch Presbyterian home. His father was a hard determinist, going further than what is reasonable to go with regards to determination. But he, he celebrated that background and that, that upbringing, and, and he cited that as the answer to his heroism as a military leader long before he came to political prominence. He, he would rush into battle ahead of his men, guns ablazing, shots being fired, firmly convinced that until the last number allotted Jackson by God, he was invincible in this life. Now, if you go lay down in Mackinvale this afternoon and expect that a car won't run over you, I am not responsible for that. But there is a sense in which, by the power of the gospel, under the authority of a sovereign God, you and I as followers of Jesus sealed by the gospel, enjoy a measure of invincibility until our time is up. And even when it is, there is assigned to us the gift of eternal life, life that cannot and will not end, life that exceeds this life in every way possible. You and I, by the power of the gospel, have been made immortal in Jesus Christ. And at least one of the applications of this passage is to press into the lostness of this world, to march face first into the teeth of death and persecution and martyrdom and difficulty and discomfort and poverty and hardship in general. Because this life and all that it offers is not what we've been called to be about. But the gift of eternal life that awaits us there at the altar of God, if, if need be. This passage serves for us to be an assurance of God's purpose and plan to save a people all his own. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come to me, and all who come I will in no wise cast out. God has an unstoppable and heavenly empowered plan to gather to himself a people all his own of every tribe and tongue and nation to seal them by faith in the gospel. And in so much as we participate in the unfolding of this great commission plan, we cannot lose nor can we be stopped. This ought to be for us a greatly encouraging passage. This idea of being sealed by the gospel. One of the things that I find interesting is, is the way a person can have access to or mastery of the facts of the gospel for an extended period of time in certain instances. And then one day there comes this moment when God enlightens the eye and opens the heart and arrests the spirit. And what you may have known for a long time, God brings to life in your heart. The Bible calls this the new birth. There are people all over the world who know about the facts of the gospel. But unless or until the Spirit of God enlightens our eyes to see and opens our hearts to believe in the new birth, 
we, we might be good at Bible trivia, but we remain short of what Revelation 7 describes as being sealed by the gospel. Now, I just wonder if there might be anyone in a congregation like ours who in spite of having access to the facts of the gospel, that God sent his only son to live without sin, to die as our substitute, to be raised again the third day. I wonder if there's anyone that's left at that superficial level of mere facts without ever having had their eyes enlightened and their hearts opened and their spirit awakened to the truth of the gospel. My prayer this morning is that God would do by the power of his spirit the work of sealing, enlightening eyes and opening hearts and awakening the spirit that we might believe, that we might behold him for who he is, that we might run to him to drink from fountains of living water. Do you know and treasure Jesus with all of your heart? Notice that God does not say in our passage, Withhold the fullness of judgment until everyone knows the facts of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, historians know the facts of the gospel. Christians have been granted by the power of the Spirit a heart to discern the truth and the beauty and the power of the gospel. And I would think it wise this morning that we would seek the fullness of God's Holy Spirit that we might behold Jesus for who he is, that we might know him in the fullness of his power and his beauty. Behold him as your pearl of great price for which you would sell it all, give it all away, exchange it all to taste and to see that indeed he is good. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its power. God, I pray that you would stir the hearts of those who are here by the work of your Holy Spirit. Sanctify the believing church. Help us to love you more, to yearn for righteousness, to persevere under some difficulty. God, I pray that you would remind us of the promise of your word, Lord, that what you've begun in us, you'll bring to perfection. Save and keep us. God, for others, I pray that you would give eyes to see and hearts to discern, awaken their spirit, God. They would behold Jesus for who he is. Seal them by the power of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.